welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book, the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Nina Serrano, and I'm excited today because my guest is Lenore Weiss. Lenore is the author of a new book called Cutting Down the Last Tree on Easter Island. She's also written Tap Dancing on Silverado Trail, and you listeners have heard some of that wonderful book, as well as readings from Shema Yisrael. You've also heard poems from Turning a Train of Thought Upside Down, and Lenore is in that one, too. Today, she's going to be reading from her new book, Cutting Down the Last Tree on Easter Island, which is beautifully produced with a cover by Jane Norling by West End Press. Welcome, Lenore Weiss. Thank you so much, Nina. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to tell people a little bit about your background from the back of the book that says, Lenore Weiss was raised in the Bronx by first-generation Hungarian-American parents. Her father, Martin Weiss, made orthopedic shoes, and her mother, Olga Weiss, was an outstanding pastry chef. You seem to take after her in that respect. I've eaten many wonderful things you've made because Lenore is part of the Women's Poetry Salon and one of the things we do is have a potluck and all the women poets bring these delicious things to eat. Lenore has served as a coordinator of her synagogue's Middle East Peace Committee in Piedmont, California and a contributing editor to the online magazine Radioslit.org. She also was editor of November 3rd, another online magazine. Yes, I was fiction editor at the time for five years, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that was quite an association. So tell us about cutting down the last tree on Easter Island. First of all, why that title? There's a poem in the book, Cutting Down the Last Tree, and it is a meditation because Easter Island is the canary for many people who are concerned about the state of our world. So there are no trees that grow on Easter Island, and it has always puzzled people how did these amazing statues get erected on the island without any trees to help do that. But with research and digging into the history of the island, people have found, scientists have found that the resources were just so used up on the island. And eventually what happened was the whole ecology collapsed. So it's a metaphor in its own way for what we are doing in our world and just taking such advantage of all the natural resources that there's a danger there for us as well. And that's what the poem is addressing. And so what are the various sections and the themes that you cover? There are three sections in the book. The first one is more my upbringing in the Bronx and also several poems directed to my mother. And there are a number of those poems that form the spine of a chapbook that I've written as well, but I've collected some of them in here. The second section is more about the adult life of marriage, children, divorce, and getting through all of that, and learning the lessons that are there for each one of us in those kinds of associations. And the last section is my discovering and embracing community and being a Jew in the 21st century and understanding, grappling with the issues of the day and many of them having to do directly with Israel and Palestine. Well, I hope that you will be sharing some 
some poems from each of the sections with us this afternoon. Yes, I've made a selection, so hopefully they're representative and the listeners will get a sense of the narrative flow of the book. Let's begin. Well, I'll begin with the poem, No Graceland, and it begins with a quote from 20th century Hungarian poet Attila Hosef, and his mother was a washerwoman, and she had a very difficult life and died when the poet was very young. The quote starts, You took yourself and your sweet breasts from me and gave them to maggots. After you pushed off, I could never trust anyone again. I knew they'd leave just like you did without saying goodbye. Packing your bags in the early morning, claiming you were on vacation. Never telling me for how long or where you'd plan to be staying without frequent flyer miles. And how many times did I call for you to pick me up while I waited with anxious hands folded over my knee, looking at each driver behind every wheel to see if that were you turning the corner? I lost count. You were a no-show. I wondered why everyone else had a mother, a sweet voice on a telephone. Blame yourself for my ruined marriage, all those years of being root-bound to a man who had turned into blue cheese, his hands and feet crumbling away from me. I kept trying to understand what I was doing to make that happen. Mother, I missed you more as an adult than I did as a child. This has been a big cover-up. Authorities stamped your papers lost in transit and Amelia Earhart hallowing the Pacific. I don't know what happened to your body, to those warm hands that used to knead dough on the kitchen table for your yeast cakes. Everything is burned. Gone is grace. This is more of my experience being a young working woman. Turn on the cold. Morning in Las Vegas. Hello, La Quinta Motel. Winds blowing 30 miles per hour across the desert. A single cactus stands in front of the dollar car rental. Twenty years ago, I drove through Vegas with a bedroll and a boyfriend. 5 a.m., green felt tables worn down to their backing. I bought a pile of shiny black chips. Smoke everywhere. Kachinka of machines. Play a card. Take a sip. A man fainted from his wooden stool into my arms. Now, guys, from work, pack a laptop. Give me the casino tour. Toilets in Venice flush automatically. Lady Liberty 
beams her torch on all package deals. Morning in Las Vegas. I'm in the shower wondering if I moved out west that many years ago for this to see Bellagio's Garden of Eden, where flowers never wilt. been listening to Lenore Weiss. She's been reading from her new book of poems, Cutting Down the Last Tree on Easter Island. And what other poems do you have for us? The next poem is My Muse. And uh, this was, for me, I was grappling uh, so many times in my life. It felt like, oh, I'm getting nowhere. And why do I keep coming back? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep writing? So after I wrote this poem, it helped me. It eased my way just to accept that I I was a writer and I had to write no matter what. My muse. She loved water and they called me fish, not knowing it was her they really talked about. Drifting with fingers webbed until the lifeguards whistled her back. I still have a few pictures of myself as a young girl, my hair already streaked to mark the place she had come from into a frothing foam. For years it seemed she had made me old before my time. Any anchor I threw down, she yanked up, twirled over her head, pounded the waves with her flippers. She always needed to make a big splash. I'd rebuke her, tell her I was going away. I was never coming back. I was better off without her, really. Then she'd grow quiet. Sometimes she wouldn't talk to me for months. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd sit hunched in a corner like this. But the truth is she pressed her thumb to my heart and let me speak my fear. Of course, she had ulterior motives. She wanted me to get everything out of the way early, even death. So she'd have my undivided attention. So she'd know I'd always be there for her when she rose from the ocean, her mouth encrusted with salt.
really like that poem. Do you have another? Thank you, Nina. This is moving into the second section, and uh, it's reflecting about my marriage, and it's called Broken TV. I was most lonely when you held me, realized how far I'd already gone without you, not ever with you. I can remember loving your edginess so tough it cut my hand. I loved the way you lit candles and incense and always had several joints rolled inside a red leather case. I loved your navy wool San Francisco fireman's jacket someone had given to you with its brass buttons, the silk shirt with billiard balls rocking on your back. You were something I never saw or felt before, so hard, so soft. But you found people flawed, too jellyfish, rode away into darkness. A few times you called my name. A few times you appeared. We had nothing to say. At water's edge, you gave sermons to a broken TV set. No more picture. gas tank and uh, it's about losing someone you love very much the week you died my gas tank never dipped below the halfway mark I kept driving and driving anywhere to let in fresh air I had a magic gas tank the week before you died I saw babies asleep with chins on their necks in strollers, angels of dimpled thighs, and pigeons rose in spirals against a rectangle of buildings. And so I was caught off balance when I found you in your bed, eyes rolled back in your head, arms stretched out as if to receive the cold kiss of death without flinching. I had a magic gas tank that took my car everywhere, but not back to you.
very powerful, very powerful poem. Thank you. So we're now in the second section. Yes, we are in the second section. And as you know, Nina, I'm on my way to Louisiana. So I have lived in Oakland most of my adult life, and it's such a wonderful, vibrant, amazing place, which I will miss dearly. And this was a poem I I wrote about that. Ode to Oaktown. I wired my sorrows into Klieg lights and let them shine all over Oakland, city of black panthers and hell's angels and general strikes, driving from the Bronx in a green Toyota Corolla searching. Was it freedom or a film I wanted to make something of myself? Took refuge in Oakland's Lake Merritt, caught breadcrumbs and fish, a wayfarer dressed in boots and dreams of Fifth Avenue peace parades to a west coast of two-story buildings and pastel houses and summers where the sun did not bother to get up until noon. Okay, I said to myself, you have to begin somewhere. That was my beginning. Oakland Raiders won the Super Bowl and I discovered I was pregnant, sailed a stroller around Lake Merritt and through her garden center, past houses with calla lilies that hugged gray gas meters even though they were ugly. Oakland took off her clothes slowly, like a woman who wants to know she is loved, following trails in Joaquin Miller filled with monkey flowers and second-growth redwoods, nuggets of neighborhoods and librarians, the Oakland Museum surrounded by a moat of golden koi where children entered into culture, art, and people who hung on walls together. Let me park my car one last time and walk to the Paramount. Remember the old hotels and faded curtains stuck on brass rings, where restaurants and condos have become the hope of a business community that wishes for homicides to fade like fog in the morning, a place I've come to know with gunshots and fireworks, the way my history has been pressed into a new release. The final section begins with this poem where I channel Lenny Bruce. Uh, Many of your listeners probably know of him. Uh, He was a comedian in the 50s, and he he broke and challenged a lot of the laws uh, regarding censorship, and he suffered greatly uh, for that. And many of today's comedians give him credit for blazing the way. 
The poem is called Reincarnated. Lenny Bruce speaks of the Jewish question, and it begins with a quote from Dr. Nurit Paled Elahan, who is from the Palestinian and Israeli bereaved families for peace. The quote is, Israel calls it in public speeches and school books the Arab citizens of Israel a demographic nightmare and the enemy from within. As for the Palestinian refugees living under occupation, they are defined in school books as a problem to be solved. Not long ago, the Jews were a problem to be solved. Reincarnated Lenny Bruce speaks of the Jewish question. Before there was a Jewish problem, there was a Jewish question. Maybe they were the same thing. No one wanted the Jews to live in their country. People hated them. Why? Because they were different. They wore yarmulkes, striped shawls, and smelled of fish. Fishy, yeah. They spoke a different language and lived in filthy ghettos. After years of being squashed until their blood-coated stones along every road leading somewhere... But not to the pub, except for the occasional schnapps on Shabbos. No, they didn't traipse to the beer garden where the National Socialists, or Nazis as they later came to be called, decided to solve the problem. The Jewish problem was not, as so many had said, religious. It was racial, which gave the Nazis a legal basis for Everything. This was so brilliant. Jews were now excluded from six branches of industry. Properties were dejudified. Jews were prohibited from attending concerts, films, and theaters. Jews were prohibited from attending German schools. Jews were prohibited from bearing firearms. You know what's next. We've all heard about the six million who died in the ovens and how the world didn't want to know about anything until it was too late, which is about when the Jewish question became the Jewish problem. Where do you stick the Jews who survived the Holocaust? You out there in the listener audience, where the blip do you put them? There was a search party. Everyone looked around. Uganda was too far from where the Jews wanted to be. The Jews became a people for a land, for a land without a people. But that was a slogan, not the reality, because it seems there were many people who lived in Palestine. The Palestinians, primitive people, said the army man, wild beasts with schmutzy teeth. Fast forward to today when Israelis have a problem with people who retain keys to houses that are now occupied by families who light candles and invite the Shekinah of peace into their homes on Shabbos. While during the week, 
Israeli soldiers order Palestinian women to strip in front of their children for security reasons, and as jailers torture and lock up young men without decent food or clean mattresses, who run checkpoints that force old men to wait in line for hours without water. Jewish life is filled with irony, which some of you out there call a Jewish sense of humor. But this is not funny. And how can I, Lenny Bruce, who in my day talked a lot of unfunny stuff, not cry out as a Jew? How can I not say that justice and mercy belong to us all? Just heard Lenore Weiss reading from "Cutting Down the Last Tree on Easter Island." Thank you so much for this reading, Lenore. Could you tell us how the poetry writing process evolved in your life? I think I've always loved music, and to me, because I am not musically trained, poetry is my way of. Writing music, and I th- I think of it that way. I just have a very strong connection to words as my as notes and words as my tools, and as part of the song that I sing as a poet. I started writing when I was a really little girl. I've been writing my whole life. I remember in、uh, the second grade. I had my first poem put on the bulletin board, and it was illustrated. Also, it was for spring, and that was the first poem that I ever wrote. And I just kept on writing. Do you remember any of it at all? <laughs>、um, I don't. I just know there was a butterfly in the picture and little flowers growing up from the grass. <laughs> And what's your process now? I've always enjoyed working on longer projects. So sometimes. Poems come to me individually, but I see them more as a meditation on a certain area that has presented itself to me in my life. So there were a number of poems, a collection of poems I wrote called the Cell Phone Poems, which was about the time when cell phones seemed to be appearing everywhere, and it occurred to me that there was a giant shift going on between public and private. Space. So I wrote a series of poems about that, and then I wrote a, another series that I worked on, and some of them are in this book. They were prayers, and they were based on a model of prayers that Jewish women had written in the 14th century. So some of those are included in this book as well. I like working on a, a larger canvas. And our listeners have heard it was a few years ago, but we did play some of the cell phone poems. Yes, and then there's the、uh, Chinggis Khan poems as well. So I haven't found my next project yet, but I hope to find that in Louisiana. Well, we hope to be able to hear it. We can record these poems by phone, Lenore. So we look forward to hearing more of your poetry. Thank you, Lenore Weiss. Thank you, Nina. It's my pleasure to be here. You've been listening to 
open book, cover to cover, the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano, thanking you for listening, and Jill Montgomery for engineering. Have a very pleasant weekend. Frustrated that your message isn't being heard and eager to let it out? Well, now you've got a place to do so. The 27th Annual Western Workers Labor Heritage Festival, January 18th, 19th, and 20th, that's Martin Luther King weekend, at the Machinist Hall, 1511 Rollins Road in Burlingame. On stage will appear Martin Luther King's opening act, Jimmy Collier, Motown labor diva, Lynn Marie Smith, the Seattle Labor Course, and many others as we sing the good songs and engage with the culture, art, film, theater, and heritage that is the American labor movement. You can Google Western Workers for more information. Proceeds benefit the Western Workers Labor Heritage Festival. This event is wheelchair accessible and is sponsored by KPFA. And you're listening to Community Supported 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. Stay tuned.